Heavy Networking by the Packet Pushers is sponsored today by IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packet to save an additional 25% off your membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Just be sure to use the code PACKET25 at checkout. That's PACKET25. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you in part by ExtraHop. Think analytics, folks. ExtraHop is the enterprise cyber analytics company delivering performance and security from the inside out. More on ExtraHop later in the show, but if you just can't wait, visit extrahop.com slash packet pushers to find out more. Today on Heavy Networking, we're going to evolve using genetic algorithms. You heard me right. Researchers at the University of Maryland in the U.S. are using genetic algorithms to automatically figure out the best way to, in their use case, avoid censorship. And if you ain't getting this yet, we're going to discuss how to get through the Great Firewall of China with about 6,000 lines of Python. So put on your propeller beanie and let's introduce our guest, Dave Levin, in a sentence or two. Who are you and what do you do? Hey, I'm Dave Levin. I'm an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. I'm also the co-chair of the computer science honors program here. And I founded a lab that we call Breakerspace, uh, where I advise about two dozen undergraduate students in their research and about half a dozen grad students. And we do a lot of work spanning network security, system security, and trying to make the internet a more secure, open place. Dave, thank you for raising the flag about this bit of research that you've done. And uh, if you're a longtime heavy networking Packet Pushers listener, Dave's been on the show before. We talked about alibi routing, and I think there's been some other topics in the past. So Dave, welcome back. And now uh, Kevin Bach, in a sentence or two, who are you and what do you do? Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm a PhD student at the University of Maryland, I'm studying computer security, networking, computer science. Lovely. Thank you both, Dave and uh, Kevin. So, so Kevin, you're working with, with Dave as your professor, and you're working on your PhD stuff. And uh, Kevin, you're one of the, the, the lead researchers here that uh, for, for this topic we're going to get into today. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Okay. In fact, oh. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that Kevin pitched this idea. And when he first pitched it, I thought it was not going to happen. I thought it didn't seem possible, but identified a few of the technical issues that hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about today. Well, let's set some some backdrop here. Um, we, we t- I set it up in the intro that we're going to be talking about using genetic algorithms and the use cases avoiding censorship. So before we get into the nitty gritty of that, w- we need to understand how countries perform censorship today. So many of us that are in the networking community are very aware that there are countries uh, like China that uh, censor a lot of the traffic that goes through their regional internet, but maybe we don't know how that's done. So uh, whichever one of you want to jump in here, g- give us a high level. How is this censorship perform today from a technical perspective? I can kick us off. Um, So there's two basic axes here. The first is, what is it that they're trying to block? How do they figure out whether or not to block something? And the second thing is, how do they actually do that? And both of these are going to factor in, I think, to the conversation. So the first, what is it that they figured out what they're blocking? They might decide, for instance, that they completely want to block a particular IP address, a particular protocol, or they might want to do some deep packet inspection and look for particular keywords. Like for instance, if you do an HTTP GET request for something containing a particular search query, for example. That's how they might determine whether or not to to block something. And to do this, they're using a lot of the same exact technology that we use in our enterprise networks today, which is basically firewalls, often from the same exact manufacturers that we might be using in the US and around the world, just operating at a nationwide scale. The second component to this 
is how exactly do they block it? And that depends on the capability of the sensor. It also depends on the scale at which they're trying to sense. So on one extreme end, they could actually be part of the path itself. So your packets are actually going through their boxes, at which point if they decide this is a flow that I want to drop for whatever reason, they can just drop the packets outright, not let anything back and forth. The most common, this is what's often referred to as an in-path sensor. They're part of the actual path that packets are going through them. Then there's this notion of what's commonly referred to as an on-path sensor. These are folks who aren't part of the path, but either through some legislative means, through some pressure, they're able to get copies of the packets going through these networks. So for example, they might have made some agreement with ISPs. You can operate within this country, but we have to get copies of packets, tee these packets off so we can see copies of them and allow us to inject packets if we want. In that case, that's where they can see these packets. And if they want to tear down the connection, then they would inject spoofed packets to both the client and the server, uh, for instance, by resetting the connection. And, and injecting a TCP reset would be one example. Another example, very, very common with DNS, is because it's not always over TCP, they would just inject uh, a lemon DNS response. So before mm -hmm. the actual response can come back, you will get first get a response from the sensor spoofing the DNS server that you tried to connect to with uh, pointing you in the wrong direction, maybe with just a completely random IP address, IP address that they control, one of those. It, it sounds like pretty classic uh, IPS architecture combined with what, what could be construed as a man-in-the-middle attack. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, you mentioned that they can do layer seven inspection, but you know, so much web traffic now is HTTPS or it's encrypted in some fashion. So do, do the sensors, I mean, it's, it's not magic. They can't look into an encrypted packet without keys. So how do they deal with that scenario? Um, it kind of depends. And they have different levels of censorship for different protocols. So like Dave mentioned, for DNS, if that's not encrypted, they can look at it and deal with it. They do have a separate pipeline. And this, again, depends on the capabilities of the countries you're dealing with. So if we're going to look at Great Firewall of China, they do have this capability called SNI inspection, server name indicator. This is a, a header in the TLS packet, which basically has an unencrypted string of the server you're trying to communicate with. So in those cases, they don't need to break the encryption. They can just directly read out where you're going. And if they don't like it, they block it. They also have separate capability arms for if you're talking to Tor, they have separate ways of dealing with those, which I could talk to if you're interested. Oh, I, I want to, but for sake of time, we should probably keep it keep it a little more narrowly focused for right now. But you're right. I mean, the high level point here is that as we move to more and more encrypted payloads, it starts to complicate things. I mentioned there, there's a few different ways that they can determine whether or not to block something. And in cases where the payloads are known to be encrypted, for instance, like Tor, then they have to revert to something else. They have to start looking at maybe just blocking the protocol altogether or yeah. blocking particular destination IP addresses altogether outside of their country. But there's still a lot of unencrypted payloads. As Kevin mentioned, until we start moving to encrypted SNI or to DNS over HTTPS, there's still going to be uh, plain text that allows yeah. them to do this. Yeah, I, I mostly wanted to make sure there was no FUD out there, that there was some magical way that uh, that these nations were decrypting encrypted traffic because, you know, they have magical tools. And right. th there isn't anything like that. Yeah, they, they got to deal with the same problems the rest of us do when we deal with encrypted traffic. Right. Now, of course, even with encrypted traffic, and this is not something that we talk about in this work, because again, we're looking at instances where predominantly it's, it's non-encrypted payloads. There are other things that you can start to use like there's notions of website fingerprinting like just looking at the sizes of the packets for example can reveal a lot of information in fact just looking at the packet size distribution of a skype call you can actually infer 
uh, what language folks are speaking, even though it's oh, encrypted. Wow. Some really fascinating research and in, in finding just how much information leaks, even in encrypted oh. traffic. But we don't have, I, and that's not something we touch on this work, and we're not seeing a lot of evidence that it's at that level of sophistication just yet. By the size of the packets, we know they're speaking nerd. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so given the controls that are in place today, are there a set of sort of common sensor evasion techniques that folks use that prompted you to think, is there a different way to do this? Yeah, so for these instances where the types of evasion techniques that work today boil down largely to how exactly the sensor is blocking them. If, for instance, they're blocking particular IP addresses, then that's where you might start using a VPN or you might start using Tor or fraction routing and various other obfuscation tools. And again, these tend to focus on sensors that block particular hosts or IP addresses. Then, of course, there's the ones that block protocols, and that's where you might have protocol obfuscation, make Tor traffic look like other kinds of traffic. But the most pervasive form of censorship, which is these on-path sensors where they sit off to the side, sort of a man-to-the-side attack, for that most pervasive form of censorship, the sensor can't just drop the packets. They're looking for these keywords and they're trying to inject reset packets or lemon DNS responses. The way that most evasion techniques work against this type of sensor is they manipulate packets. They maybe change fields in packets or they drop certain packets or they add certain packets to confuse that sensor into thinking either, oh, this isn't the communication that I should bother tearing down or tricking them into getting so confused that when they try to tear it down, they don't do so successfully. For instance, by making them inject a reset packet with the wrong sequence number that both the client and the server would just ignore anyway, Mm -hmm. for example. What makes this remotely possible is that these sensors are operating at such a huge scale that they have to take certain shortcuts. There's a lot of work that they have to do for this. If they're trying to, to track keywords, detect keywords at layer seven, that means they have to maintain state about every active TCP connection going through their network, right? They have to, the packets might be segmented. They need to piece them together. They need to keep track of the sequence numbers. Mm. So that way, if they do inject a reset packet, it's the right sequence number. So they're maintaining per flow state for all open TCP connections that they think they might want to eventually censor. Because of that, they have to take certain shortcuts. So the way that these evasion techniques have worked in the past is they they sort of learn how these shortcuts, what shortcuts they're taking and how they can exploit those. And you're saying that the sensors are taking these shortcuts because they simply can't scale uh, given the volume of traffic they're trying to uh, sniff. That's the main hypothesis. There's a couple other things as well that would just be hard for them to do. So for example... The canonical example of an evasion technique like this is that imagine I'm the client inside of a censoring regime and I want to talk to some server outside of that censoring regime and I don't want to get blocked. One of the shortcuts that these sensors take is if they think that the connection has been torn down, then they get rid of their TCP state for it and they basically stop paying attention to it. So the canonical example of an evasion technique is, is if I'm the client, I send a reset packet with a TTL large enough to cross the sensor, but not large enough to reach the actual destination. So then the sensor sees this, it goes, oh, this connection got torn down, it clears its state, it stops paying attention, and then I can go ahead and communicate. Now, there's two big things, two big shortcuts that they're taking here. The first shortcut is, as soon as I think it's been torn down, I'm just gonna stop paying attention to it. The second is, it assumes if I got it, then the destination must have gotten it as well. So 
what could they do to change this? They could main, start keep maintaining state, even for connections they think are torn down, which could potentially be costly. And they could, I don't know, maybe do trace routes or something to the destination to figure out, is this a valid TTL to get to this destination, right? <laughs> Both of these yeah. are complicated, might require more memory, might require more active probing. Right. And so both of these are shortcuts that operating at that na- nationwide scale seem reasonable, but open up the path for, for circumvention. Yeah, way, way too much overhead there. So, okay, those techniques sound uh, effective. Uh, so what's, what's actually wrong with uh, th- that approach that's been going on traditionally? Fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with confusing sensors in this way. In fact, this is exactly what our technique figures out. The problem with previous techniques is more about how this prior work went about discovering these circumvention strategies. They did what we normally do as scientists. They first try to understand how the sensor's firewalls work by iteratively hypothesizing and performing measurements. Then once the researchers or practitioners have a good mental model of how it works, then they apply their human intuition to try to come up with, well, what might make sense? What might be some corner cases? How might I trick this? If this is how it's working, what assumptions might it be making? Let's try this, let's try this. Right? So you're applying this human intuition after you've spent time developing this mental model. And this should sound familiar because it's the scientific method. And of course, there's nothing wrong with the scientific method. <laughs> go science. <laughs> go science. <laughs> right. But when you're up against an adversary with an uh, asymmetric informational advantage, They know how the black box works. We're constantly trying to learn how the black box works. So the problem is that because it's a manual effort, it can take a long time. And then once you've developed a new circumvention strategy, you release it or you publish it. The sensor learns about it. They patch their system and then you're back at square one. You're back to the whiteboard. You're hypothesizing. You're measuring. You have to repopulate your mental model. And over time, this has favored sensors because they can fix faster than we can understand. They have this informational advantage. Mm. We're constantly playing catch up just to understand how they're working. So your idea was, hey, computers are pretty good at automating things and doing them faster. Why not let a computer try to figure out how to get past a sensor? That's exactly right. Geneva flips this whole process around. Rather than hypothesize and measure and then eventually, you know, divine some some intuition and develop the strategy, it first comes up with a strategy. It goes and it applies uh, artificial intelligence through a genetic algorithm. And in what would take researchers months or sometimes years to come up with new circumvention strategies, Geneva finds it in hours. Uh, It outputs ways to manipulate packets that will successfully circumvent censorship. We'll talk about exactly what that means to manipulate them. What are the building blocks? What What are these algorithms that it's coming up with? Um, But after it outputs, here's a way to circumvent censorship you can start using these immediately before even understanding why they work. And so you can put this in the hands of folks who, who want to circumvent censorship, activists, journalists, folks who just want access to, to information. But then being the scientists that we are, in parallel to that, we want to understand why these strategies work. So we take these strategies that Geneva finds, and then we start measuring and hypothesizing. Why does this work? Did it work because of a gap in logic? Is it a bug in the firewalls implementation? The way it manipulates packets, does it need to be manipulated in that exact way? Is there a little wiggle room? And so it's kind of like, the analogy I like is, you know, you take a math class, they say, solve this problem and show your work. Geneva gives you the solution, and then we can show our work by basically working backwards from the solution, right? Mm-hmm. It will so find things incredibly, incredibly easier. It will, it has found things that you look at and you say, 
why does this work? And then, it, but it basically points you in essence to exactly the part of the right RFC to understand, oh, you, it turns out you can reply to a SIN packet with a SIN packet, or it turns out a SIN act can have a payload. How, how do you process that? And then mm. uh, it, it points you exactly in the right direction uh, so that then we can better understand how exactly the sensors are working. So you've said Geneva several times. It's worth pointing out here if we didn't make the point before. Geneva, it's it's not exactly an acronym, but it's an abbreviation, if you will, for genetic evasion. You've assigned this name Geneva to the algorithm. Um, and as you've described it, Dave, um, it sounds kind of like fuzzing to me. Um, is it like fuzzing or in, in, or maybe is it is it also unlike fuzzing? Could you explain that for folks who would know what fuzzing techniques are all about? Yeah, let's let's talk about what Geneva is doing. So First off, what fuzzing is, fuzzing, broadly speaking, is a way of generating random inputs to some program, some software system, as a means of testing it. And so if you think about it, you could just generate random inputs to any program, and then hopefully it shouldn't crash, for example, or there should be some uh, expected behavior. And there's a wide range of work in fuzzing. There's lots of different kinds of fuzzing. You could completely be 100% random. You could have grammar-based fuzzers, so on and so forth. Our system, Geneva, as you said, genetic evasion, operates a little bit differently because Geneva has two jobs it has to do simultaneously. The first is try to circumvent censorship, but the second is to allow whatever application you're using, HTTP, web server, DNS, FTP, that has to succeed. Okay, so I can't just get past the sensor, but then break your application, okay? So Geneva also is completely agnostic to what these applications are. So the inputs to Geneva are an existing package stream. It sits there as you have some application like a web browser running, trying to communicate with a web server, say, outside the country. Geneva has access to all of the incoming and outgoing packets. And what it does is it takes those packets and manipulates them. And it'll do that in a few different ways. And this was the big technical hurdle. So when Kevin first came to me and said, I want to build a genetic algorithm that's going to manipulate packets to learn how to circumvent censorship, the reason why I couldn't see it at the time is because if you think about it, how am I supposed to manipulate these packets to evade censorship? On one extreme end, given a packet, I could add a bit, remove a bit, and flip bits. And in that case, I could convert any stream of packets into any other stream of packets, and eventually I'll find something that confuses the sensor. But it's going to take this thing a million years to learn what a checksum is. That's too many degrees of freedom. The other end of the spectrum is we could say, just encode the things that are known from prior work, like this TTL limited reset packet. For make that one of the ways to you know make make one of the ways to manipulate packets to introduce a TTL limited reset. But then it's just going to relearn everything that was already known. We're going to encode it with with previously known information. What's that right balance? What are the right sort of building blocks? These genetic building blocks that can manipulate packets in such a way that are expressive, but also operate a little bit. And so what it does is it takes these packets, it manipulates them with these building blocks. We'll get into exactly what those are in a second. And it comes up with these building blocks in a random fashion, and it mutates them in a random fashion. And this is how it explores the, the state space is it through random mutation. So how is it like fuzzing? It's like fuzzing in the sense that it's driven in a non-deterministic fashion. There's some notion of randomness. It updates what sort of manipulations and how it alters inputs based on the feedback that it gets. And the feedback it gets is, did I make progress through satisfying the correctness of this application? Did I actually download the web page? Did I actually get the DNS response? 
where it's different from fuzzing is that we're fuzzing this this might sound like sort of a you know a, a technical like little detail but it's kind of important where fuzzing largely is generating the inputs geneva is manipulating the inputs to arrive at new inputs that end up getting fed into the system what we're fuzzing specifically is not the inputs but the the how the input should be modified if that makes sense yeah, we're going to pause our podcast discussion for a word from our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV, they are flexible online technical training. Why training? Training helps you take advantage of the career paths that are available in IT. And IT has an incredibly strong career path right now. A recent MIT study shows that IT occupations have grown by nearly 20% between 2004 and 2017. That is more than eight times the growth rate of other career paths. Earnings are growing for folks in IT as well, even though earnings are flat for college grads on the average. IT Pro TV can help you take advantage of these IT career trends with courses covering CompTIA and Cisco and EC Council, VMware, and lots more. There are over 4,000 hours of binge-worthy, on-demand training content out there for you. The hosts that are presenting the information, they're doing it in engaging, a talk show kind of a format to keep you paying attention. And they're live every day if you like live content, but then that live content goes studio to web in 24 hours so you can stream it whenever you're ready. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job roles so you can find what you're looking for without a lot of headache. You can stream the courses, of course, live or again on demand via any method you're looking for. Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC, their iOS or Android apps. you got all those sorts of choices. And the big idea here, make it easy to learn your stuff, then go pass your exams, earn your certs, and then land your next great job with the help of training from IT Pro. TV. So how do you do it? Visit itpro.tv slash packet to take advantage of their lowest prices ever. That's itpro.tv slash packet. itpro.tv slash packet. And when you use the code packet25 at checkout, you will save an additional 25% off your membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Just be sure to use that code packet25 at checkout. That is packet25. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. And now back to the show. So uh, Dave, I think you touched on it a little bit, but Kevin, maybe you could just sort of explicitly state what is a genetic algorithm? Cause that's going to be key to the whole discussion. Yeah, definitely. So genetic algorithm, this is a biologically inspired computer science primitive where basically and it's, it's been used in many applications, but the principle of the thing is just like evolution. If you remember back from biology class, you start with a large pool of something, whether the, the and these are individuals. So these individuals could be, in our case, these are censorship evasion strategies. We'll talk about how we build those in a second. In other cases, they could be a solution to a problem, an algorithm you want to test, um, a biological creature, etc. Um, you take this big pool of individuals and you evaluate each of them. How well is this thing doing? In our case, we can just test these strategies against the sensor. In evolution's case, it's like, did this thing live or die? In the computer science way, you assign a, some sort of fitness metric to it. So you basically quantify how well each thing did. So the ones that did poorly get pretty low scores. The one that did well get high scores. Mm-hmm. And then you go through and you do some sort of selection. And often there's some algorithm with how you do selection to try and maintain genetic diversity. But long story short, you kill off the things that do poorly and you duplicate the ones that do well. And that process basically is one generation. You take the ones that do well. You apply mutation, you crossbreed them in with each other, and that gives you a new population pool. 
And that process I just described of mutation, evaluation, selection, each generation, you repeat, rinse and repeat for a, a set number of generations. Um, and overall, hopefully, the fitness overall of the pool improves as you go. And this is all happening inside a computer model. It's not researchers picking the individual algorithms or results and saying, yes, let's advance that one, but not that one. You're letting... Exactly. Okay. You're letting the metrics decide. Exactly. You, you've set some bounds though, Kevin, right? So, I mean, in the paper, you, you could, I mean, if we started with as big as the pool could be and the kind of mutations you could <laughs> go through, it could be infinite because there's just so many different exactly. fields and bits you guys could be flipping around. So, I mean, oh, you, exactly. you have bounded Geneva to you know, a certain set of changes and mutations that can be made yeah yeah so the this is kind of a key insight of how for for this work of how we could apply genetic algorithms to this idea of network traffic right because it, it's not immediately clear when you first look at this how those things can really get in a room and play nice together what we did with geneva is we took a look at network traffic and basically when you have network traffic there's really only four things you can do with it right if you have a packet you can drop the packet you can make a copy of the packet you can duplicate it you can change the packet in some way. We call that tampering the packet. You can fragment the packet or segment, right? Break the packet up in some way. And like from a router's perspective, from the IP layer, TCP IP, those are basically the scale of actions you can do to packets. So if you look at those actions, right, some of them, for example, tamper, you give it one packet, it does some sort of tamper primitive to that packet, and you get one packet out. So that action, one packet in, one packet out. But of the packet, of the actions I described, say duplicate, for example, or fragment, you put one packet in and you get two packets out. So this is kind of natural way you can take these actions and start composing them into like a binary tree format of packet in at the top, you're going to duplicate it to the left duplicate, tamper it to the right duplicate, fragment that, drop the right fragment, and then send what comes out. So that's basically how we represent quote unquote evasion strategies in Geneva. They are these trees, and these trees are compositions of actions, which are effectively descriptions of how a packet stream should be modified. And by bounding Geneva on effectively what, what are valid actions in the IP space, we can start letting it explore the space of strategies that can operate on network traffic, right? But without blowing up possible runtime and, and running for tens of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. I need a few more years <laughs> on the supercomputer. <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. Okay. Now, one other component to this, as a lot of the SDN listeners will appreciate, is that these trees of made up of these sort of genetic building blocks of these uh, packet manipulation primitives are the actions, but there's also triggers. So there's a match action kind of approach, much like in, say, OpenFlow. The matches, for instance, would be particular packet header field values that if the packet matches that value exactly, then it will run that packet against that tree. So for example, it would say, for any outgoing SYNAC packet, uh, apply this tree to it. Now those action, those triggers themselves um, are also evolved. We don't tell it, look for these kinds of packets, don't look for these other kinds of packets. That's something that's also developed, that's mutated over time, that's developed randomly. And that's usually, it turns out, one of the first things in its steps of evolution that it starts to learn. First, it starts to learn what packets are even happening. What packets am I triggering on? For instance, if it, it could, because of random mutation, because it has no idea what any of these packet header fields mean. All it knows is the syntax. It knows nothing about the semantics. So it could say, oh, I want to trigger on all outgoing TCP packets that have the fin bit, the reset bit, the sin bit, and the act bit set. 
it's never going to trigger. So that right. strategy is going to have no fitness because it's just not even doing anything whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But then eventually it's going to stumble on, let me try triggering on a push act packet. And then that starts triggering. That's going to increase its fitness a bit because at least it's doing something. What it's doing might be completely useless and might be just dropping all of the packets or fragmenting them or tampering them with such a way that just completely tears down the connection. But that's usually step one in the evolution. And it's a, it's a really important piece to this because it, it, I think it further shows we didn't impart any of our own bias or understanding in this. It has no idea what a TCP three-way handshake is. It doesn't even know what TCP is. It just knows these are the different packet header fields. This is how many bits they are. I'm allowed to change them. Hmm. Let me ask a leading question then on AI. So uh, artificial intelligence, which you've uh, said is a technique that's being used here, or, or that could, this genetic algorithm and this evolution process could be considered AI. We hear AI and ML all the time coming from marketing people, and that's not what they mean. They're, they're using the term in a way that's kind of bogus. Is this really AI, a truly an AI technique, or are you kind of capitalizing on the, the sensational buzzworthiness that AI brings? This is legitimately AI. I think if you take any sort of intro to AI class, genetic algorithms are likely to come up at some point. And I think the, the, the salient point here is that we imparted no knowledge into this thing other than the mere syntax of packets. And over time, it learns, it starts to, you know, it starts to walk along the space of how to manipulate packets, of what packets make sense. It's, uh, it is legitimately AI, but at the same time, like virtually all AI, it's also very dumb. It doesn't know what it's doing. It doesn't right. understand why, <laughs> why manipulating a TCP through a handshake in a particular way. It has, it's not, a, you know, developing this deeper, you know, semantic knowledge there's no deeper understanding behind what it's doing. But it, but by exploring this space automatically and finding these things, it shines the light for us. It points the direction what we should be looking at and why these things are working. But yeah, this is this is legit AI. So so AI doesn't stand for artificial intelligence, it's more like accidental ignorance. okay there's a this bounding thing i want to go back to that where you've tailored the algorithm by giving it a set of boundaries that it can do its explorations within the um the different triggers and then the possible actions that you will allow it to take so there's a trade-off here that uh, that geneva's got baked in between efficiency we want to come to some sort of an answer of how to evade the sensor in a reasonable amount of time versus thoroughness where if you just let it go bonkers it would take a lot longer but in theory, couldn't you come up with some other uh, uh, evasion techniques if you just you know, let you opened up the boundaries a bit more? Kind of. So it depends what you're trying to get at. Duplicate, tamper, fragment, drop, and send. With those, I can turn any stream of packets into virtually any other stream of packets. It's extremely expressive. We went back and looked at all previously published work, all of the different strategies that they had come up with, and we saw which of these could have been expressed using these primitives? And the answer is almost all of them. So almost all of the ways that humans have allowed themselves to think of this, Geneva has the capability of doing it. It's well within its bounds. There's two exceptions, and both of these could be added by just making them additional primitives, additional building blocks in Geneva. One of them, there was some prior work from several years ago that said, if you just wait for tens of seconds, I think it was, then eventually the firewall will just erase the state, and then you can just continue on. Before the TCP connection automatically times out, the firewall will. 
So we could have added a primitive that said, just sit there and do nothing for a while. But we chose not to, mainly because we didn't want it just sitting there doing nothing. We wanted it to actively go and learn. Could you do that? I'm sure you could. I'm sure it would learn it. Another set of strategies that that we did not arm it with or give it the the tools to be able to find were various application layer things. Uh, Initially, our initial design of Geneva only manipulates IP and TCP. And it can corrupt the payload, but it doesn't understand payload. We didn't give it, for instance, the syntactic representation of uh, what an HTTP packet looks like, for example. So it understands the syntax of IP and the syntax of TCP, but that's it. So there's some prior work that showed, oh, there's some application layer things we could do. And again, you could just add new tamper primitives that would understand application layer things that then would allow Geneva to start exploring it. And that's one of the things we want to start looking at in future work. But, but again, there is always a trade-off where the more the, the bigger you make that possible action tree, the longer it's going to take Geneva to finish its its evolution. Exactly. I think what we found is we struck a pretty good balance with what we have currently today with restricting it to the space of possible uh, packet level actions. To be honest, like there's a ton of bit things, bit like things you can do to packets. Like you can imagine just like let's flip the bit, the seventh bit of the packet, right? Most of those bit flips that we've played with this in the lab, often these aren't useful or they're not more useful than, uh, say, just tampering whatever field the seventh bit lives in with some other incorrect value. So we, we think we struck a good balance with this efficiency thoroughness trade-off with this, uh, the, the space of actions we've given it. And also, just to put it into context, certainly the more primitives that we give it, the bigger the space is. There are more ways there are to mutate and the more potential individuals and you know generational opportunities to go down. Uh, but to put it into context, usually it takes about an hour for Geneva to completely run and to get back with, uh, with useful results. Sometimes it takes as short as 15 minutes for it to sort of converge on a set of strategies that succeed. And then it might take some extra time refining those strategies. As we said, you know, the first thing that it starts to learn is what packets should I trigger on? Eventually, it learns how not to just tear down the connection. Finally, it learns, okay, now it's not just getting torn down. Let me also now evade censorship. And then the final phase of learning is it starts refining. It starts removing the vestigial actions that aren't really necessary. And that's something that we didn't have to put that in. If it works, it works, right? But we wanted to go back and look at these actions that it comes up with, these various strategies it comes up with, and understand why they work. And so if it were, for instance, taking a packet, duplicating it five times, and then deleting the five duplicates, that's useless. Don't let us look at that. So this last phase of learning, one of the aspects of the fitness function is try to make itself as small as possible so that it still works. These phases of learning, we did not encode this ahead of time. Again, all it does is has the ability to mutate, crossbreed, and just try to learn. This These just sort of emerged is this was emergent behavior of this genetic Hmm. algorithm and even still even though it's doing all of these things it usually takes about an hour and it's finding ways of circumventing so even if we added more i don't think we're looking at something like oh well now we've pushed into days or weeks and just as a point of clarification at the beginning of the podcast you're talking about in path and on path censorship in path was a node uh, on the network that can drop packets Uh, on path was i have to send packets to the the host or the the destination to get them to essentially kill the transmission. The techniques you're describing here for Geneva are for the on-path censorship. You know, it's funny because we thought it had to be 
only for on-path censorship. Right. They would have no chance with in-path censorship. But since this paper, we've been running some against some other in-path censors in other countries. And it turns out it can sometimes get past mm -hmm. these in-path censors. The, as I said, there's two aspects to censorship. One is detecting whether or not it wants to block. And then the second is actually trying to block it. With an in-path sensor that has the ability to just drop packets, if we can trick it into thinking that it shouldn't be blocking this traffic, then we're through. If it realizes it should block the traffic, then there's really nothing that we can do because then it can just start dropping. But it turns out there are some in-path sensors that Geneva can confuse enough that it doesn't even uh, choose to drop the packets. Interesting. I, I want to ask a question about middle boxes and whether you've done any compliance testing. We've had a, a lot of problems with fiddling with TCP or the IP headers in the public internet because there are a number of middle boxes out there that actually attempt to conform TCP to a subset of the standard. So you said earlier that mm. you're flipping bits or doing sin, sin packet or sin, ac, ac, sin, ac, sin type things. A lot of middle boxes will actually prevent that and break it. Have you done testing to validate that the internet at large won't break your algorithm? Yes, that's a great question. It's actually something we're working on right now of... We, we've obviously, we've run Geneva in a lab and like, we are testing over, over the real internet. Like we have, we have vantage points. We're testing to real hosts through the real firewall. But you're absolutely right. We have found there are middle boxes. There are organizational firewalls um, that don't always like the packet tricks we try to play. So it's kind of this interesting, almost dual learning space where it makes the problem a little harder for Geneva, where it's got to find a set of strategies that the organizational firewall will like and that the sensor does not like and that the server will accept. So it's something we're working on now, and it is possible. It just kind of makes the game harder. But it's something it's something we have played with and are looking at. Is that okay. a feedback mechanism you can include in the genetic algorithms? So it gets a little trickier. Yeah. It gets a little trickier of identifying, did this strategy fail? It's easy to tell if it failed because if the sensor stepped in, right? Yeah. Censorship is usually a fairly obvious signal. Um, it's also generally fairly straightforward to say, did this strategy destroy the connection, right? Did my connect time out? Did I get a reset before I even sent the payload? It starts getting a little more challenging to say, hmm, did my packet stop going through because the border gateway didn't like the second packet I sent? Mm -hmm. Or is it because I corrupted something that the sensor actually the server actually cares about? So there are there are some tricks you can play of like how far do these packets get, like hops wise. So there are there are some like backdoorsy ways you can start encoding this into the fitness function. Uh, but again, it does make the game harder. This came to our attention pretty early on. So as as Kevin mentioned. We started off by evaluating Geneva in the lab. We wanted to do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison between prior work and, and Geneva. And the thing is, as, I, as, as we talked about, when prior work gets published, like when people publish in this space, these sensors will react. They'll patch their system. They'll update their system. So the strategies that used to work even just a year or two ago just don't work anymore. So what Kevin did is he sort of re-implemented censorship in these Docker containers, this based on the previous work's description of how the sensors worked. So that way we could test it as close to the old school style of censorship as we could. And while he was doing this at one point, it started spitting out hundreds and hundreds of strategies that were working, strategies that really didn't make any sense whatsoever until we realized that what it had done is it had figured out how to crash the Docker container um, that was running the sensor. <laughs> and so the sensor just wasn't there anymore. So one Docker bug patch later, now it's it's more legitimate. Uh, oh he's goodness. also found bugs in uh, Scapy, a very popular packet manipulation library in Python. Uh, most recently, a bug in TCP dump. Uh, so 
These are often really, really weird bug reports that we we send. Hey, when there's a packet that's fragmented in this way and it has pin reset, right. act push, <laughs> urgent bit set, and then this events, then unexpected behavior happens. So, I'm sure, folks are wondering why we're bothering <laughs> to do that, but the AI doesn't know. Not kind of like how the hell did you find that? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back to this podcast shortly, but we're going to talk about ExtraHop, a Packet Pusher sponsor first. Your job probably includes managing applications, network infrastructure, and so on. But how do you do that when you can't even see everything those apps are running on, when half the network the app is running across isn't even yours? Add to that SDN changing things in automated ways that maybe feel out of your control, or devs and other business units firing up their own cloud instances and then expecting you to support it even though you've got zero instrumentation. These scenarios are some of the ways that ExtraHop can help. ExtraHop is a leader in network analytics, and they help you consolidate tools into their analytics platform and make sense of application performance running over infrastructure that's sprawled beyond your data center and across the internet and then into the cloud. ExtraHop offers complete visibility and leverages machine learning to help you make sense of the mountain of metadata about your network, and in the end, you can make informed decisions about your IT stack and do it quickly. If you go to extrahop.com slash packet pushers, you can find out more about the ExtraHop performance platform. Once more, that is extrahop.com slash packet pushers. And now back to the show. Dave, one quick follow-up question about the amount of time it takes Geneva to run. You said, oh, it's about an hour, uh, you know, roughly on what sort of hardware? Yeah, so I, I can jump in here with that. Uh, the runtime with Geneva is going to be, so there's a couple different parameters, right? One is how, how long do we want as humans to let this thing go? Do we want to say you're going to run for 50 generations no matter what? Do we want to say you're going to run until you found or you think you found a solution so your population has converged to one thing, population convergence? Um, or there's like a time bound. Like you can run for two hours if you have something great, if not, shut down. So that's one, one axis of how long it runs for. The second axis is kind of how strong is the sensor we're running against? What is, what is the sensor model? Um, so we run against very weak sensors. Um, and in that case, Geneva could be like, it tries a couple things, and within a generation or two, it's like, whoops, look at that. I got through. And it's a very short and easy process. There are, there are much harder sensor models you can run against, and that can take 24 hours, 36 hours, a, a longer duration of time. So it, it does largely depend on the sensor model we're running against, how long we as humans want to let it go for. Yeah, it's kind of multiple parameters that play into that. And is the boundary like like CPU, or is the boundary actually the amount of time it takes to send that traffic across the internet to the sensor, wait for a response or not, and you know, and so on? It, it's more it's more the secondary thing. Most of the computer most of the computers we run on these are potatoes. Like these are one one gigabyte of RAM or less, eight gig hard drive. Like we're talking free tier machines, um, absolute dirt cheap, low network ability. So it, this is not like that kind of machine learning where you need this like terabyte of RAM, five hundred CPU cores, GPUs <laughs> out the wazoo. Um, it kind of just needs to time and to play with these strategies. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, you guys have seen routers. It doesn't take all that much memory to copy a packet or two, right? So it's it's just it's more in the the technique and how it's doing it than the the sheer scale. The fact that it takes an hour is mostly a self-imposed limit. We're not trying to blast the network. We rate limit ourselves in terms of how how often we can send packets, how many connections we can create over time, uh, and that's just sort of our effort to play nice with the network and also uh, not to uh, hit any sort of rate limiting that we might confuse as sensors. Right. 
Geneva is evaluated serially and fairly slowly. If you if you took Geneva, parallelized the hell out of it, and stuck it on some pretty powerful machines, you could get things done a lot faster. Uh, so going back to the the um, genetic algorithm idea, you you mentioned fitness testing. How how does Geneva go about calculating a fitness score? What does that mean? A lot of the magic actually of Geneva working comes down to just how we built the fitness function. So again, just just to back up. Um, the fitness function is a, the portion of the genetic algorithm that goes into the evaluation of each strategy. And the fitness function is just a numerical metric of how well this thing did. So we as designers of Geneva have some goals that we want Geneva to, to do, right? We want it to beat censorship. Like Dave said, we want it to not break your TCP connection. There's also some secondary goals. Like as researchers, we, we want it to find strategies that don't take us 10 years to understand. We want it to minimize these strategies. We want it to find strategies that are precise. If it can, instead of triggering on every single packet, we want to know which packet is important to trigger on. So conciseness is important. Strategy complexity is important. We would like it to remove, we call these vestigial actions. Like again, as as human bodies evolve, we have parts in us that are vestigial. They're no longer used, but they're just here because they haven't been evolved the way yet. We would encourage Geneva to please remove things that are vestigial, like other portions of the strategy that are there but are not used. The way we encourage these behaviors is encoding them into the fitness function. We can say things like, you have this strategy, you ran it. If it succeeded, we'll give you a reward. And if it fails, we'll punish you. And we can punish it different amounts depending on what behavior we want to encourage. So if it's destroying TCP connections right off the bat, we'll punish it harshly Mm. because we don't want to encourage it to go ahead and wail on your TCP connections. If If it got censored, like if it was ineffective, we'll punish it, but maybe not as much. If it succeeded, it got through the sensor, but the strategy is enormous. We'll give it a big reward for, pun- for beating the sensor. Then we'll punish it a tiny bit and say, hey, this thing you found, good job. You beat the sensor, but it was pretty complex, so minus some points there. Uh, it also generated some extra packets, minus some extra points. And you had this extra trigger at the end that's not used, so minus a little bit more. So by encoding these, these goals of what we want Geneva to do into the fitness function and just letting it run, it will eventually start building towards a solution that meets these goals through the blind goal of trying to improve its own fitness score. Right. As the scores are applied and we end up with, with a result, I mean, how, how did it know that things went well or, or badly? Is it just because it got a response back that it knows it only could have gotten if it made it through the sensor? Is there a, you know, a human that's involved somewhere like behind the great firewall who's confer- confirming that, yeah, I can, I can see this material that would have been censored before? Right. So thankfully, there's no human in the loop in the actual evolution. Um, after the fact, we will absolutely insert ourselves in the loop so we can confirm things are working the way we expect, right? But it, it's kind of very, again, censorship is a very overt action. Like if you're, if you're trying to request a resource and your TCP connection is suddenly torn down before you've gotten anywhere, that's, that's pretty obvious. So it, it's not like it's hard to find signal that you need a human to step in for. It's kind of yeah. like the connection succeeded or it didn't. And it's kind of this... I'll, I'll try and impart in your mind this separation between the, the application and the strategies. So Geneva is agnostic to what, what's running underneath it. Like it will, it will run whatever application we tell it to run, right? And that application will report success or fail. So if that application is like, say, just take curl or dig, right? They go curl for this forbidden resource. And curl will say, nope, sorry, connection reset. And Geneva will be like, all right, punished. Or curl will say, I did it. And then we can flip, bring that back to the genetic algorithm and 
apply the fitness function accordingly. You've done lab testing. Have you also tried to put somebody in China and have them see oh, yeah. reach forbidden destinations? Well, that was the big challenge, right? So first we verified not only uh, can Geneva do as well as previously published work. In fact, within hours, it rederived all previously published work that it had the physical capability <laughs> of doing so. Years of work, it, it rederived in hours. Again, not the ones that that would have required building blocks that it didn't have, but over 80% of previously published work, it it ended up uh, rederiving in hours. And then some, including the Docker bugs. Uh, but then the big question was, what's this going to find against the real sensors of today? And it turns out it's not that easy to get machines in different countries. But over time, we ended up getting machines in several different countries, including within China, within India, and within Kazakhstan. And we talk about, we present results in our paper for all of these. Mm -hmm. And the bulk of them come from China, largely because China's censorship is next level. Everyone else's censorship is relatively elementary, uh, where China has really invested a lot over the years. And so the sets of, of strategies, the level of sophistication Geneva had to apply in its strategies was much greater for China than in, in other countries. And so by now, I think across these three countries, we found something like five dozen uh, different strategies. Some of them are similar to ones that have worked in the past, maybe with slight tweaks. There are so many, though, that just to even make sense of them and to be able to talk about them, we needed to come up with a taxonomy. So we kind of continued with this biological inspiration and we came up with a speciation. So there's species, subspecies, and variants of all of these different kinds of strategies. Some of these species are brand new that folks actually posited would not even be possible to do. And Geneva has found them. Some of them are bugs in the Great Firewall of China. One of the uh, our favorite ones, which we racked our heads on this one for a long time, showed it to some other experts, said, do you have any explanation for this? And lacking any other explanation, all we can say is it, it must be a bug. One example is for an outgoing push act for HTTP. So this will be your GET request. All it was doing was segmenting the TCP packet with the GET request. And so segmenting is just, you know, you take the large TCP packet and split it up into several different TCP packets. So it's like fragmentation, but at the TCP layer. So there's no actual IP fragments. And so when we saw, oh, there's a TCP segmentation strategy, like a strategy that just is using TCP segmentation. That's it. That's all it used was broken up into three segments. We figured, oh, you know what it's probably doing? It's probably just breaking up the keyword, right? So if we were searching for the word ultra surf, for example, it's probably breaking it up into ultra and surf. Ultra surf is one of the keywords that gets blocked. I know. And, but then we took a closer look and we realized, no, that keyword is completely intact in one of these three segments. What's going on? So we start playing with it a little bit. And this is, this is where the human element factors in, where given the strategy, we try to understand is this the exact strategy? So it might, for instance, say segment the packet, break it up into one segment, that's the first eight bytes, another segment, that's the next four bytes, and then the third segment is the rest of the original packet. And go, okay, well, did it need to be eight? Could it have been seven? Could it have been seven and five? Could it have been like two and 10? So on and so forth. And what we found was that it has to basically, there's some bounds in the paper we talk about, but it has to basically be these three segments such that the sum of the size of the first two segments is no greater than 12. And the second packet goes no further than, I think, like the, the slash in the get request. Some silly little bounce like this. And 
But the keyword again was just appearing right there. If all they were doing was a regex in every single HTTP packet looking for that keyword, it would have shown up immediately with no good explanation for why that works other than a bug. And there's no way we could have come up with this if we hadn't run it against the real live sensor. And it's also one of these things where how could a human have intuited this? No matter how much hypothesizing and measuring, how are you going to figure out that there's this weird reassembly bug uh, that's happening? Um, in these in these sensors for this particular application, like this is where I think, you know, this kind of approach, this this automated approach, isn't just sort of a a faster way of doing it and a nice tool to help along with doing it. It's something that I don't see how a human would have come up with this otherwise. Even if Geneva did just learn to segment the keyword in such a way, that would also be a surprising result. The Great Firewall has had the ability to reassemble TCP segments flawlessly for almost a decade now. So our first hypothesis, we were surprised even that that would work. And it just kind of got more and more surprising as as we looked into it. In this conversation, it's clear to me this is a a fairly powerful technique. But I'm also wondering, couldn't I, as a a sensor, apply it myself to become a a better sensor? Absolutely, you could. And that's something that we've thought about, right? So I think in any aspect of computer science research these days, especially in networking and especially in security, there's a level of like, well, what happens when this result gets out there, right? There's there's an ethical component. Are we doing more good than harm? Is there, Are the potential benefits outweighing the potential risks? And so we thought about this and we said, is this something, is it is it ethical to release the code? Is it ethical to put this work out there at all? Should we just leak strategies and not even reveal what the technique is? And ultimately, here's we where we just came. Be those guys are like, hey, look at these new strategies we found. We like, would look how brilliant. the hell did you find that? We would look brilliant. And in retrospect, we probably should have published like 10 papers and then revealed that we didn't actually say, come up with any of it. Would have um, been such a smarter approach here. Really morals. Um, <laughs> so here's our thoughts on this. this. What this is effectively doing is eventually... Somebody was going to figure out this, maybe these segmentation strategies, maybe these various things that that Geneva finds, and eventually the sensor was going to patch them. What I see this as is it's as if we're taking this arms race that has been playing out slowly over years and years, and it's kind of like we're holding the fast forward button down on it, right? It's almost like these AI that learn to play Go or chess, right? These, These players, these professional Go players watch AI play Go, and they've said, it's like watching a game of Go take place in the future. Like it's evolved so far from their understanding of it that it's hard to understand why they're even making some of these moves. This is kind of similar. It's saying, let's just fast forward. And so it's less a question of where does this throw off the arms race? It's the question of where would we see this arms race eventually ending? Who's going to win ultimately? And I think when it comes to things like these bugs, yeah, they're going to patch those bugs. That's fine, right? That's something that they could apply Geneva, patch those bugs. But then there's those other things we talked about, these gaps in logic, these things that would require significant investment to start, they, they don't check checksums, for example. This is a, a, something that Geneva exploits very commonly across many of its different species. They could start computing checksums. They could start paying closer attention to TTLs. They could start uh, not taking that shortcut of when they think the connection is torn down to start doing it, right? So they could get to the point where they start to realize this isn't just a simple patch. This is going to require significant investment in the infrastructure. And so, mm-hmm. so 
I, I don't know where that's going to be necessarily, but it's sort of eventually where that arms race was going to end. And so I think what this is going to cause us to start thinking about is as this sort of pushes us to the logical end of that arms of that particular technical arms race, it doesn't mean there's no more arms races. It just means what's the next arms race going to be. It's going to be a question of, can they invest and scale out faster than this AI can learn? Are they going to start shifting? Maybe it's less about detecting these keywords, and then they start trying to detect the AI itself. And what could the AI do to evade detection? (laughs) One of the, some of the strategies that Geneva comes up with, if they were looking for it, would be obvious. So some of the things just to confuse the sensor, but not the destination, the other end hosts we're communicating with is these frappen packets. It's a bin <laughs> reset, ack, push, urgent, it, like almost all of the bits. Um, any sensor could just look for these ridiculous combination of flags and say like, oh, you're clearly trying to do something, I'm going to drop it. But that's something that we could reflect in the fitness function. You could imagine penalizing this for saying, this is unlike any packet we've ever seen before, you're punished. Right. Uh, but we, we don't have to do that yet. So that might be the next where the next arms race starts to go. So could they apply it? Absolutely, they could. But I think um, it, it's it's holding the fast forward button down. Yeah, it's it, what you're describing there, checking all those. It sounds like some of the stuff Nmap does when it's trying to fingerprint an OS. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, also just to chime in with this question, like Geneva, it, it's this new thing. It's exciting. But at the end of the day, we are just taking packets. We're doing the things you could do to packets since 1980, right? And we're just doing those in different orders. So... I don't think it's unreasonable to think that someone else wouldn't have come up with something like this. I mean, sensors could have been fuzzing themselves a decade ago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In all fairness, though, when you first mentioned the idea to me, I thought, I don't think it's going to be possible. <laughs> so maybe other folks have had this idea. That's fair. And they, just, they didn't know any better and, <laughs> and didn't. Know. That's fair. But can I tell you guys about actually something kind of new that Geneva has found that, that wasn't in our first paper and starting to see these results in? Traditionally, all of this work to evade censorship is all centered on adding extra software at the client inside the censoring regime, which makes sense. When you think about this problem, you're trying to get access to information, you need to install some more software. You got to use a VPN, you got to use Tor, you got to use Geneva, you got to do something. But then we had this question, could we do something server side? What if the server outside the censoring regime, is there some way that it could manipulate packets so that a client a completely unmodified client. And by the way, I should clarify, Geneva runs purely at the client with, the, with an unmodified server. It does not require coordination from both ends. It's manipulating packets only from the client side. Right. But then we say, can we do that? Can we flip it? Can we do it just from the server side with no modification to the client? And if that would work, that would be amazing because what that would mm. mean is if you're running a server and you want everybody in a particular country to get access to it, you had a little bit of software on your server, and now all of these people in that country, without having to download any extra software, without having to be cognizant that they're even being censored, without trying to actively get around it, suddenly has access to your your data. Right. The sensor um, would sub- the the server would subvert the sensor on the behalf of the user. Is wow. the theory? So we thought about this, and then we're thinking, well, how would that work? Because if you think of take HTTP for example, the sequence of packets is the client sends a sin. The server sends a synac, the client sends an ack, and then the client sends a push ack, which is the the query that would have the censored keyword. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that would have the censored keyword. The sensor would see it and block it. So we're like, well, 
from the time that the connection starts to uh, to the censorship event, all we're sending is a Synac. What can we do? There's nothing we can do. You can't just, what's, what can you put in a Synac? So we thought about it, we're like, this should be impossible. And eventually someone said, why are we even talking about this? Just run the AI. The AI doesn't know it shouldn't work. <laughs> Let's just see. Like, and if after a day, after a month, after if it doesn't find anything, then maybe we say, okay, it's not possible. And I wouldn't even be bringing it up if it hadn't found something. So to date, it's found, I think, 10 different strategies, eight within, uh, eight within China. And it exploits these weird, esoteric little corner cases of TCP. And this is what I was talking about of it, it will return a strategy that then causes us to go back and look at the original RFCs. So here's a quick example. Um, client sends a SIN. Normally, the server would respond with a SINAC. Geneva learned to instead respond with a SIN, at which point the client will get this, and this is TCP simultaneous open. This client will respond back with a SINAC mm. for that same exact connection. This buys the server a little bit more time to send its own packets to confuse the sensor a little bit more until uh, then when the client eventually sends the push act, it comes. We've seen other things, bin packets with payloads. The server responds to the SIN with a reset. The client knows that's not a reset act, so this isn't a valid reset, I'll drop it, but the sensor gets confused. So it's found a lot of these various instances, things that we didn't realize Synax could carry payloads, for example. And so we see these outputs and we say, is, is this even valid? Why, are, why is this client okay with this? You go back to the RFC, you right. say, well, how many different ways can I respond to a sin? Oh, here it is, these weird little corner cases. And so again, eventually there was going to be a researcher that pulled up these RFCs. Eventually they were going to look for these weird corner cases and eventually they were going to explore server side. This held mm -hmm. down the fast forward button. Uh, and so now it has multiple strategies for India, for Kazakhstan, for China that are purely server side outside wow. of those countries. If you were to deploy this, um, yeah. then the all ITF, the clients in there would have access. The ITF has always believed that to be as strict as possible in the definition and as flexible and possible as what you accept. <laughs> and I think you're actually exploiting that uh, mm -hmm. opportunity or you're arbitraging that uh, aspect of the ITF standards. That's a great way to put that, it. Yeah, they would always say, define exactly what you want in the standard, but be very flexible about it. It's like, um, you know, BGP or OSPF is a fairly rigid standard, but it leaves a whole bunch of stuff unsaid, and that's gone on to be exploited and extended over the years. Like BGP TLVs right. have been substantially abused to create the abomination that it is today. <laughs> um, and to some extent, you're arbitraging that, um, that gap between those into, into an opportunity. Well, it's even worse than that because we're talking about RFCs and standards like all the boxes conform to the standards and like all the TCP <laughs> right. stacks out there obey the rules, which, of course, they don't. So you can find so many other corner cases depending on the box that you happen to be pushing traffic through and how it might behave. There's weird, all kinds of weird things that could happen potentially. A great point, too, which is why when we test these strategies, especially the server-side ones, we then have to try it. Okay, that worked fine against Linux, this particular version of Linux. Let's try it against various versions of Windows, various versions of Mac, to make sure that all of them handle these weird little corner cases the same way. And it does turn out that there are some, some variants of these strategies that will confuse some clients. But that's the nice thing, is that then Geneva can just kind of run in that space and figure out what the right parameters, what, how, exactly how to mutate the way it manipulates these packets to satisfy all the clients. Mm. 
The context we've been talking about Geneva and, and what it does has been evading censorship, working around censors so that you can get access to information you wouldn't otherwise have access to. But w- what are the other use cases here? I mean, it feels like I make a security box and I want to know how good of a job I did. I'm going to run Geneva against it and see what see what I missed in my coding would be in, like another use case. Um, is there other ways you anticipate Geneva being used? Absolutely. I think, you know, the the fact that you were asking, hey, this kind of seems like fuzzing, that same kind of logic applies. Throw Geneva at this, at whatever sort of protocols you might have. You could imagine using this to just test how well your protocol is designed, let alone implemented. We're really excited to start, you know, exploring application layer things. I'd really love to get a better sort of empirical understanding of PLS 1.3, for example. There's a lot of, you know, theoretical evaluations of the specification. This would be a really fun way to ex- allow it to explore some of the, the, the stranger options in TLS 1.3, for example. So I think for, for testing protocols, testing implementations, not just censorship, not just IDS boxes. But I think what I'm most excited about with this is just this AI-assisted approach to, under, to measuring networks to testing networks, to testing implementations. So I I hope that this is a first step towards a a wide range of applications that go well beyond what we're even envisioning. Now, as we record this, um, it's end of October 2019, and you're scheduled to present Geneva at the ACM event that is in London, the the Security Special Interest Group uh, that's there. Uh, you're presenting that in, in just a couple of weeks as we record this. So give, give people a sense of what happens at this event and what you expect folks to do with Geneva once you've presented this. Oh, so CCS is a huge conference. Uh, it's taking place in London. There's usually five talks going on at any point in time. Uh, so hopefully the attendance at ours will be good. Hopefully more than, even more than N over five. Now we'd settle for N over five. Um, so it's largely an academic conference. Uh, the, well, the paper will be available ahead of time. So let's see, what can folks do with this? We're going to be making our code and data publicly available. So the hope is that, let's see, on the researcher side, that hopefully they'll build off of this and uh, explore other ways of applying artificial intelligence to understanding, measuring, circumventing certain kinds of networks. Um, the hope also is that this can help activists, that this will help the anti-censorship community we can envision potential applications to Tor, wide range of different systems. So this is something that we're hoping to engage with researchers, with activists, with practitioners across the board. Got it. And it's a public here on Packet Pushers as well now. So certainly you're getting the word out uh, successfully. Um, it, it, would I, uh, is there like open source or a GitHub repository for if I wanted to download Geneva and play with it, I, I could, or is it still a little early for that? We're going to have it uh, publicly available by the time the conference happens. So just making sure it's in in publicly consumable form for that. Currently, what we're thinking of doing, because again, we still have this notion. It's interesting. Meta comment, I don't know yet, and we'll have to kind of get back to you. (laughs) But the thing is, there's we've been toying around with this idea of this partial concern, as you raise, of like when this gets out there, will this always be used for good? Will folks use it against themselves? So we're thinking of breaking the code up into sort of two components. The first component is the component that's sort of the, the Geneva like strategy engine, which given a strategy, will apply it. This is something that you could download. This we're going to make publicly available. So you can just apply the strategies that Geneva outputs. And if you just apply this piece of software, Kevin's tested this already using Chrome inside of a, on a machine inside of China. 
that it's able to browse the web with no modifications to Chrome, just using this thing that's manipulating packets. But that's not the AI component. That's not the thing that's learning new strategies. We're thinking of that being a separate piece of software. And that one, we have to be kind of careful, I think, and we're, we're, we're still considering what the best way to release that is. Yeah. Do we just go ahead and make it's it public? Also, or do we say, hey, you can have access to this, but please write to us so that we understand what you might be using it for. But the other side of the coin is, as Kevin hinted at, the big contribution in this, it's not a very sophisticated, it's not like a hard piece of code to write. The hard part was the insight. It was the design. And it's, it's clear in the paper. You could take this paper and you could re-implement it. So part of us also wonders, like, are we, what are we really gaining by not having this available so folks so right there's so no the answer is i don't know it's not in the paper i don't know yet if you'd like we can kind of get back to you between now and and when we decide <laughs> before you go public with this that would allow us to to answer specifically well i, I think from a standpoint of the the folks that are listening to the this episode that might be interested in this um you know, if you end up deciding to go public or however much you do go public with that people can click in and learn more. Absolutely. Yeah. Let us know those URLs, uh, Dave and Absolutely. Kevin, and we'll, we'll include Absolutely. them in the show notes. This is really Thank interesting yeah, stuff and, and, and very thought provoking. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, all right. Let's wrap this up, guys. Um, Dave, starting with you, are you uh, a public a social figure where you are on Twitter or you blog or anything like that you'd like to share so that people could reach out to you or contact you? Sure. I'm on Twitter. I'm distributed Dave. And Kevin, same question for you. I got, I got no, no public handles to follow. So thank you though. Yeah. Yeah. You're a PhD candidate. That's, that's, that's what you do. <laughs> exactly. That is your life right now. Yeah, we get it. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Dave, um, thanks to you for reaching out and letting us know about this research. This was an absolutely fascinating episode. Uh, yeah. Love recording this and, really and having cool. this discussion. Thank you really, so much guys. Yeah, thank Always you guys. Great job with you. Yeah, the, the same, Kevin. Thanks so much for your research and work, and we're, we're looking forward to hearing more. We'll watch you with great interest, as they say. <laughs> Likewise. That was, that, wait, that was evil. That wasn't good. Sorry. Anyway. Uh, okay. well, we, I don't will, know if I want that. We'll evade, we'll, we will evade that gaze. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we'd love to hear them. You can tweet us at Packet Pushers. Fill out the contact form at PacketPushers.net. And uh, happy to hear uh, what you want want us to talk about our future episodes. And by the way, the Packet Pushers, we have a weekly newsletter called Human Infrastructure Magazine. Him is loaded with the very best stuff that we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It's free. It doesn't suck. Go get the next issue, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And until then, remember that too much networking would never be enough.